Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. There is a feeling that at long last, soccer has arrived in the United States. Either it's arrived or it is arriving. A study came out showing that soccer is now the third most popular sport in the United States. The sense of excitement for the upcoming World Cup and the 2026 World Cup is palpable everywhere you look. There's American soccer players playing at some of the biggest clubs in the world. But as we've gotten to this place, of course, this story has a beginning. And for many, the story of American soccer, at least modern American soccer, begins in 1994 with the 1994 World Cup. But prior to that, the 1990 World Cup was actually the first World Cup that U.S. soccer made since since 1950. There was a massive gap between World Cups from 1950 to 1990. And that story of the 1990 World Cup has sort of been the forgotten World Cup within American soccer. It's not one that a lot of people talk about outside of the Paul Caligiuri shot heard around the world. Today, we're bringing on a guest who's going to tell us a little bit more about this World Cup that we just don't talk about very much within American soccer. He is Adam Elder. He is author of the book, New Kids in the World Cup, a story about the 1990 World Cup, the players, and, and, and just everything surrounding it. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I didn't know much about the team either, and I ended up writing a whole book about it. Um, I just found them super fascinating. It is, you know, it's it's one of those things that we just don't have a lot of history about. It's so funny that uh, today the internet just records so much and we have so much information on everything. But prior to like, you know, 2003, if you try to find a picture of anything, you know, it's all pixelated. I went through a, um, <laughs> a, some pictures of the of the players from the 1990 World Cup. And some of them are just like they don't even have individual pictures or pictures with other players. It's so interesting how far we've come with archiving. Uh, but speaking of how far we've come, I mean, it's people are f- aware that, you know, prior to 1990 and prior to 1994, uh, U.S. soccer was kind of amateur hour ish. Uh, uh, some of the players had part time jobs. In fact, one of my favorite little stories is that uh, the head coach of the start of the 1990 so- uh, cycle, Lothar uh, Osiander, I believe is his name, was right. the head coach. And he had a part time job as a maitre d' in a restaurant. And he was actually replaced later on by Bob Gansler because he didn't want to quit his part-time job. Can you give me a sense of uh, <laughs> of what U.S. soccer yeah. was like at the time, what the national team was like, who these players were and where they came from? Football is back and Bet Online remains your number one source for all your football betting needs this season. You'll find the latest odds, matchup info, player news, and game trends. And as your continued source for all wagering info, BetOnline features live betting, free contests, live scores, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events like MLB, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf. Head to BetOnline.ag to join and receive your 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BELIEVE to receive your rewards. BetOnline, where the game starts. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's that's a perfect point. And, and Lothar is a, a great coach and a great man. And um, he his his job, uh, his day job was much better paying, a lot more secure. You know, um, any sort of position within American soccer back then was was neither of those things. Um, it, w- it was all on a part time basis. Players would train for a few days before the game. Sometimes they wouldn't find out who their teammates were until, you know, they got on the plane together um even i i mean g- going back before this in the 70s i i was told that 
you know, when the U.S. team had friendlies, they would uh, round up a few locals in, in the city to make up the numbers and maybe even put a foreigner or two on the team who <laughs> wasn't even American. So, um, yeah, I mean, the and but there was this period, you know, where, where the NASL had a boom and then that went bust. And in the aftermath of that, you know, the 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 game went indoors to to um, indoor soccer. And it was just a, it was just a really bad, sad time in many ways uh, for soccer in the United States. And that's that's kind of where my book starts out, um, but with a quick flashback to sort of the NASL. But it was just, and and also e- even more than sort of the status of of you know players and you know a, a part time coach and whatever, there was just a whole attitude, especially in the '80s, more so than maybe anywhere any other time since I feel like that your average American just really hated soccer it it just it was just kind of the thing to do it was how mainstream America felt about the game everything was a little off about it everything was a little foreign you know the the socks were high and the shorts were short and there was a lot of running and it was just so opposite of American football and so um it was just this really kind of weird sport that a lot of america just didn't have any interest in they were they were either determined to ignore it or determined to hate it i feel like yeah there was that period in america where america was very america centric and and we kind of exactly. uh, rejected anything uh from the outside and and that includes soccer and you know e- even at that time whenever you think about like what food we eat today and it's like <laughs> you know sushi mexican food you know just all these ethnic foods that have come in and become very popular in the united states there was a period where that wasn't the case because we were just rejecting everything that wasn't american at the time and that kind of bled into into soccer uh give me a step yeah sorry can i can i make a point that's a really good point because um there's it surrounding this team that was a period in the world where america was winning the cold war and you know our our pop culture was being exported everywhere and you're exactly right people had no interest in in outside things and that's where this team found itself when they were when the American team was, you know, trying to join the World Cup and and play the world sport and become more a part of the world. So I just want to say that's a very good point. <laughs> and, and today we know that uh, so much of the team is made up of uh, dual internationals. Was that the case as well in, in 1990? Um, no. What's interesting about the 1990 team, I mean, it continues today, but what part of what I think is so cool about the team, uh, among many other things, is a lot of them are second generation immigrants. So a lot of them, um, their fathers played professionally somewhere else, maybe in South America, maybe in Europe. Um, and so, I, I mean, they, they, they could have been um, duels like, like where a lot of them had, but they were born and raised in America or, or had you know, spent most of their lives in America. So uh, similar situation, but, but slightly different and, and appropriate for the time. Um, uh, other than that, um, Hugo Perez, who was kind of in and out of the team, naturalized American, moved from El Salvador at age 12, I think. But uh, yeah, a lot of them were born and raised Americans, but grew up in families and households where, you know, soccer, this totally foreign sport, was just the most important thing going on in, in their household. So we, we've got the uh, the World Cup cycle for uh, 1990 going. Um, during this cycle, 
Mexico actually gets eliminated from the World Cup because they uh, had some players play in a youth tournament that were overage. Uh, so they get disqualified from the 1990 World Cup. So that's a huge boom for the U.S. That means that the, the big dog in the region is, is not going to be able to qualify. That means the U.S. actually has a shot. Uh, but going throughout World Cup qualifying, most of World Cup qualifying, uh, the U.S. hadn't been awarded the 1994 World Cup. Was there like a, um, a a big change in 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 the emotion around the team and um, the the sense of importance whenever the 1994 World Cup actually gets awarded? I think 40 days before the game against Trinidad. Yes. So the the um, the 1994 World Cup was awarded to the United States on July 4th, 1988. As as soon as the date was announced, everyone knew which which country would get it, um, and Right before that is when Mexico um, was was banned from qualifying for um, or yeah for, for for the 1990 World Cup and like you say that was significant they'd only missed out I believe um, offhand they'd only missed out on it three times and there were only two Concacaf qualifying spots so they always took one of them pretty much and so that really opened things up so going into the so right after that, the U.S. played Jamaica um, in a in a home and home series in order to reach what we later called the hex, you know, the final round of of Concacaf qualifying. And you're absolutely right. Once once the U.S. did that and reached the final rounds, um, reached the hex, then <laughs> it's amazing that the president of of the U.S. Soccer Federation, Werner Fricker at the time, um, builder from from the Philadelphia era. Uh, area uh, took out a personal loan of seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to fund the push for the, the the team in order to fund them and and whatever to qualify for the nineteen ninety World Cup. I mean, he he put his own personal wealth on the line, like his life's work, his you know um, all of this. Basically, betting on on an American soccer team which hadn't qualified for for forty years is it's just such an amazing you know matter of sports wagering, I guess. Um, and other than that, you know, but Fricker was also the one who had led the bid to, to, to get 1994. And as soon as that bid was announced, you're, you're absolutely right. He, he started telling anyone and everyone that it's extremely important that us qualify for 1990 and that we get a serious team in a hurry. And all of those things is what led to them getting a full-time coach in Bob Gansler and players actually getting paid full-time getting real contracts. They started treating the U.S. men's national team more like a club team, uh, scheduling friendlies anywhere and everywhere around the world. Um, it was basically like Operation Warp Speed in order to bring the U.S. from, you know, the the previous soccer decade into, you know, the present and, and maybe even the future. And it was it was radical and there was really no room for error. They had to qualify for the 1990 World Cup, or else, you know, I mean, yes, the 90, 1994 World Cup was probably going to happen, although there is a little bit of questions about that on whether that was contingent upon the U.S. qualifying for, for 1991. Um, there's a little bit of ambiguity about that in my book because no one's quite sure. And, you know, honestly, no one can trust the, 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 the FIFA heads at the time. Um, then or now, but especially then, and and there's some really great stories about 
about those characters in the book. But uh, yeah, it was, we went from a period of players playing college and on these sort of short-lived regional outdoor leagues and indoor leagues to, you know, basically being a full-time national team and having to win some very important CONCACAF games and in short, doing something that no U.S. team had done in 40 years and learning it as they go. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, there's, there's some really interesting stories in there. Um, I, I remember seeing that um, the national team, or at least part of it, actually competed in a five-a-side futsal tournament uh, just because they needed to get games together. Um, that, that's so interesting. I mean, imagine like the current U.S. men's national team entering a, a football, futsal tournament in order to prepare for the World Cup. Like, <laughs> and they did minds. great. They, they, they knocked off uh, Italy and Brazil, and I can't remember who else. I believe they got third place in it. It's coached by Joe Macknick and featured uh, a lot of the players, well, you know, several of them that went on to star in the 1990 World Cup. Yeah, it, it exactly. Is, I'd always thought about the 1990 World Cup as, a, as an important building block for the players who would ultimately make up the 1994 World Cup uh, to get experience and, and to get the camaraderie and, and understand what a World Cup was uh, heading into 1994. What I didn't really think about um, was was the financial side, uh, where the 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 federation, at least according to a book that I just picked up, uh, got one point four million dollars just for qualifying, and then an additional like ten million dollars in uh, the broadcasting rights and everything that came with uh, with making the World Cup. So making that nineteen ninety World Cup was financially i mean was it was it crucial was it i mean how how important was that financially for u.s soccer to make that 1990 world cup and was that felt by the players it was extremely important um wow that's yeah that's a that's a huge can of worms um first of all um <laughs> it was important for I, I i assume it was important for mr fricker to, to to get his money back um but also you know so, sort of going along with with what we were just talking about a moment if the U.S. didn't qualify for the 1990 World Cup, I mean, everything was on the line for these particular players. Those contracts wouldn't have been extended. There's no way. Um, there would have been very little soccer to play uh, between 19, the end of 89 and somewhere before 1994. I mean, the, the Federation, the program, and just U.S. soccer as a thing would have been in complete disarray. Um, and so once the U.S. did qualify, Trinidad, the famous game, anniversary is coming up on November 19th. Um, the, <laughs> the players somehow found out how much money uh, the Federation was getting, and they wanted a big bump in their contracts. And uh, so that was quite the standoff. They went on strike, actually. And there's still some hard feelings about it to this day. It, it really interrupted the, the, the team and the harmony for a few months. And in fact, some of them... Um, got kicked off the team and it was a it was a real sore spot money always seems to be um when it comes to u.s uh, national teams and and the federation and uh not just u.s i mean everywhere yeah for sure um and i, I i'm not sure if we can say that's that's where it began for the u.s but that was certainly a, a a major step and and you know this was several years before um before the players unionized so they just this was their first attempt at and at actually getting power that, that I'm aware of. So yeah, the money was a big deal for sure. It was, it was life-changing. 
You mentioned the the famous game against Trinidad where the U.S. actually qualified for the World Cup. Uh, I'm sure a lot of U.S. soccer fans, uh, especially the old heads, are aware of that game. I'm sure they're aware of the shot heard around the world from Paul Caligiuri. Um, in doing a little bit of research for this interview, I, I was not aware that this game was important for Trinidad, too, because had Trinidad had a draw, they would have qualified for the World Cup, something that they hadn't done in a while. Um, and, and because of that, I mean, they had like a um, it was like a weeks long celebration in their country for this game. I mean, they had like a, a, a day of prayer. They had like a national holiday on the game. Um, reading some of the accounts, I mean, uh, players talk about this like it was uh, absolute pandemonium in that country. Uh, what, what were some of the stories and, and, and feelings from the players? about that game and not just the game itself, but arriving in that country, staying at the hotel, just interacting with the fans uh, with so much on the line. And mind you, a lot of these players are not uh, full-blown professionals. I mean, some of them were, but some of them were college students. Some of them were semi-pro. Uh, so, so tell me about that game and, and what that experience was like from the player's standpoint. It was unbelievable. Um, the U.S. hadn't scored in 200 minutes leading up to that game. Um, they, they had great defense. Tony Miola was really coming into to his own as, as the U.S. goalkeeper, who's 20 years old, by the way. Uh, and so they had a real problem scoring, and there was a lot of um, acrimony in the squad. They had started out um, in, in Florida and played an exhibition game behind closed doors against Bermuda. And the entire, like, federation delegation came out for this game. And when the players... And the staff saw that everyone got really nervous and the game didn't go so well against Bermuda. So everyone was really nervous uh, going to Trinidad because they hadn't been playing well. And then their dress rehearsal didn't go so well. And this was a must win game against Trinidad. And they all knew their futures were on the line. You know, some were getting married the next week. Others have just bought a house. I mean, you can imagine all this, all this personal stuff that a lot of these young people are going through. So uh, they fly and, and by the way, leading up to flying to Trinidad, the, the practices were extremely intense. They were staying in this kind of rat hole um, out near Cape Canaveral, this old Houston Astros uh, spring training center. There were fist fights breaking out in practice every day. Um, it was nuts. So they finally, so they fly into Trinidad, I believe, three days before the game, land at midnight. They weren't, exp I mean, they, they weren't trying to sneak in, but they weren't trying to make a big show of it. And as soon as they land, they hear a voice uh, it's, it's from the captain or a stewardess or whatever saying, U.S. You know, men's team, please remain seated. And as soon as they get out of the airplane, they were hearing this humming the whole time. As soon as they get out of the airplane, there's people all around the airport. There's people on the roof of the airport, Trinidad fans, tell it, saying, we're going to win the World Cup. And there's this chant that they heard all week that was um, TNT, we want to go everywhere they went. The bus goes to their hotel. Fans lining lining the highway three deep everyone's in red the whole week um again like you said the archbishop of 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 trinidad um had a special mass that day uh all week the the newspaper had red headlines i mean the the travel companies were already selling packages uh travel packages to italy for trinidad and they had missed out on the world cup um i can't remember the exact year but in very controversial circumstances to Haiti, they'd had, I think, four goals disallowed and the referee was later banned for life for cheating. So this was really important to them. And 
this was a really good Trinidad team uh, by their standards, one of their best. And the interesting thing is, I was talking to Seamus Mallon about this, who was at the game, is that, you know, they, these Trinidadians have this, have this chant, we want a goal, the, the, the supporters. But the funny thing is, like, they didn't need a goal. They just needed to tie. But that Trinidad team was so wide open and attacking that they were almost incapable. I mean, they, they just weren't the kind of team to, you know, suffocate a match and get a draw out of it. But leading up to the game, you know, all of this for the U.S. players, to, to get back to your question, it was kind of drawing them closer together. They didn't have, you couldn't get this experience in the United States, like the big game where an entire country is up for a match. And they were really feeding off of this. This is in one sense, I mean, yeah, they're the opponent, but in one sense, this is like everything a soccer player could dream of at this point, an American soccer player, like an entire country up for a game. And so it really helped them out. And by the time they were lining up in the tunnel next to the Trinidad team, you know, if the U.S. players thought they had nerves, they looked over at the Trinidad players and these guys all look like ghosts. They were, they had so much pressure on them. And the stadium was oversold. <laughs> the uh, Jack Warner and the Trinidad Football Federation are reported to have sold two tickets for every seat. Um, there were, there were parades, there were musicians. I mean, the whole thing was, it looked like the opening ceremonies of something pregame. There was so much riding on this game for Trinidad. And there was also so much riding on this game for the U.S. team. And they had had such chips on their shoulders their whole lives. Not only, you know, being a soccer player in America, which wasn't an easy thing to do, but this was like, I, you know, I, I and others call them the NASL's orphans. They, they all grew up watching the NASL and, and seeing Pele and Canalia, Best, and so on and so forth. And then they grew up and it disappeared. You know, the, the league had disappeared, the sport had mostly disappeared. And so they were fighting for their future. They were fighting for the sport. And this game, this was it for them. This was their 90 minutes to shine. It's, it's absolutely fascinating whenever you, you put it into the context of American soccer, just mediocrity for 40 years, no <laughs> expectations on these guys. Yeah. Nobody's thinking that they're going to make a World Cup. And then you start this cycle. All of a sudden, Mexico it gets banned, so the top dog is out. All of a sudden, you, 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 you get the World Cup in 1994, and people are, are financially um, needing this to happen the players have some financial stakes like all of a sudden everything just just changes and it goes yep. from this ho-hum you know thing that w- was probably an uh, interesting story that people that the players would tell about uh what they did with their summer whenever they got back to their day job <laughs> all of a sudden like it just it felt like life was at stake so let me ask you after the trinidad game the U.S. beats Trinidad. They qualify for the 1990 World Cup. Uh, it had to be an extreme relief on the part of U.S. soccer. The players had to be over the moon. What was the sense in the United States at the time? Uh, did this register um, with, with, the, um, with the general sports population? Did people care? Were they excited? Very little, unfortunately. You know, it, it would be kind of a news of the day item when a player would get back to um, his hometown. Uh, but no, I mean, they, they landed, <laughs> they had this crazy, I mean, they, they had like, you know, the, the party, the end all parties, um, uh, I, I won't spoil too much at their, at their hotel, which is called the upside down Hilton, uh, in Trinidad. And then they had to wake up early the, the next morning, typical, uh, for a flight 
uh, back to Miami. Uh, the plane develops some kind of engine malfunction midway and they get stranded. They, they had to make an emergency landing in Barbados. And there's this whole thing about that. I won't, I won't ruin it. But um, so long story short, they get back to MIA and there's basically no one waiting for them. A few of them, you know, fly back to California and St. Louis and, and, and there's some press waiting for them at the airport. But no, that in, in, in November of 1989 is how the United States of America celebrates a win, you know, qualifying for the World Cup. There's no one waiting for them at the airport. The ESPN telecast of the, tele, of the Trinidad game was tape delayed. And I believe 432,000 TV sets across America watched it. So after the U.S. qualified for the 1990 World Cup, there really wasn't a lot of media. Um, and I mean, it just it just wasn't there. However, um, it was. But that's the tension always, you know, there was there's there's always been a soccer audience in America. It just hasn't been mainstream America. And so I, I, I mentioned this because, you know, they, they went on this like crazy exhibition match tour of, of tune-up games they had you know basically six months to get ready for the for the world cup and it was it was like finishing school for them so they're playing games in miami they're playing games um in the bay area they're playing games in in pasadena in st louis and wherever they went they drew big crowds they kept breaking uh you know records here and there for for crowds so there's always been a soccer audience in this country it's just the problem has always been getting mainstream america and the mainstream media to care about it. So that game, so they played a game in February. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. They played a game in February uh, at, uh, in Palo Alto against the USSR. And that set a new uh, attendance record for, for an American game. Um, after that, they flew down to LA for the weekend to record this sort of famous slash infamous rap video <laughs> called Victory uh, that I, I I go into this a lot in the book, the the the, the whole making of it, maybe in excruciating detail. But um, and you know that was an attempt with the help of of the Azovs, who are you know Hollywood um, record industry royalty, to give the team a boost, uh, this this nice marketing boost. You know the the Chicago Bears had done the Super Bowl Shuffle uh, a few years before. There was We Are the World. This was this this was like a pretty good idea. They got the celebrities of the day to rap in it with them, O.J. Simpson and and some American gladiators, Marcus Allen, Luke Robitaille, and others. And um, it kind of didn't go anywhere, you know. I mean, it was on MTV, it was on Night Tracks, it was on probably VH1 and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, the United States of America just wasn't quite ready for American soccer at that point. Um, the soccer fans were. They always have been, but it just, you know, you, you can you can put the American soccer team into America's living rooms on a TV set aside, you know, aside OJ Simpson and, and others. And it still just didn't didn't go very far. It was tough. It was tough back then. That that rap video is wild. I mean, <laughs> I, I came across it one day just like, why does this exist? What was happening? I don't understand. Um, really interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's out there. Well, Everybody wants to see it. Okay, I'll give you the 15-second version. This all started when Paul Caligiri got into a party in the Hollywood Hills at Michael Lippman's house for George Michael. Um, and he was hobnobbing with the 
stars of the day. He was he was in a mansion talking with Tom Petty, hanging out with Guns N' Roses, on and on and on. Uh, the end result is the rap video you just you just mentioned. <laughs> so that's so uh, the 1990 World Cup. I mean, it draws a lot of similarities, I think, to where we are right now, because the 1994 World Cup was hosted in the United States. The 2026 World Cup is going to be hosted in the United States. You had a very young, inexperienced team in 1990. You have a very young, inexperienced right. team um, in, in 2022. Um, and it, it feels like um, a lot of 1990 was building towards 1994, and a lot of 2022 is building towards 2026. Um, after the stress and pressure of qualifying for 1990 was was out of the way, and and the U.S. soccer investors had gotten their money back, and everything was going to be okay, <laughs> was did did everything immediately turn towards 1994? Like, what was the pressure and build up and feeling uh, during 1990? Were the players looking forward to 1994? The 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 administration, the staff, uh, what was that build up like? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, as far as team selection, yeah, Bob Gansler liked to say that he said he, he would tell people, I'm not selecting a team for 1990, I'm selecting a team for the 90s. And so, you know, talking with Tony Miola and others, they say just what, what an amazing man he was that he took all these young guys and wanted to give them experience, throw them into a World Cup, which, you know, we'd never been in. Um to give them experience for 94. I mean, what coach has that kind of courage and 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 foresight to 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 do such a thing because he did have other players available to him. Some some folks playing in Europe who we later saw in 1994, a lot of them Thomas Dooley or Stewart, um those types of guys. Um but Bob was a loyal guy and not only that, but you know, he he would say, "Well, where would I put you know, this guy's great, but where would I put Bruce Murray, for example? Um, and so, yes, there was definitely with with the team one eye on 1994, but 1990 was also very valuable in many ways because uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation learned a lot of things the hard way. You know, it had quickly become apparent that when you're out of a world cup for 40 years once you qualify you have no idea what to do you know they i mean i i, I don't want to ruin anything in the book but I, I i might as well go there like they didn't have a training base until like a few months before the world cup started because this sort of thing hadn't really occurred to people they were due to stay in italy's uh training center um which uh, is Coversiano, which is, uh, you know, like checking into the Ritz, soccer's version of it. But as soon as Italy, as soon as Seth Blatter, of all people, drew the United States against Italy and did his little uh, David Copperfield routine at the at the World Cup draw in late 1989, which everybody saw coming, um, the U.S. had to find a new place to stay in a hurry. And they ended up at this place that uh, was kind of the opposite of the Ritz. But anyway... There were just so many little things, um, just all these learning experiences. You know, when, when you're starting anything from scratch, I mean, you're you're figuring it out as you go. And they've done that in just qualifying for the World Cup. And now they're doing it in getting to the World Cup. And so all these lessons, I mean, I, I, I would talk to um, folks like Kevin Payne or, or Sunil Gulati, and all of these things they learned, qualifying for 1990 and, and, and getting to the 1990 World Cup and how to act when you're at the World Cup and, and all this was hugely valuable 
in planning and and going through the 1994 World Cup. It's all honestly, it's all part of what made it, you know, this this, you know, unanimous, unanimously agreed success that it was and still is. I think it's I think their attendance record still stands. Really? The 1994 World Cup. Yeah. Yeah. Even after uh, they went to 32 teams. So, anyway. so the 1994 World Cup is credited with kind of launching the modern American soccer. I mean, it was linked with uh, with with launching MLS. Um, it launched the careers and and the stardom of so many players. I mean, we get the iconic images of uh, Alexi Lalas, Marcelo Balboa, Tab yeah. Ramos, Eric Winalda, uh, Ernie Stewart. All these guys that are still around American soccer. Some of them in a very big way. Uh, some of them having uh, roles that are a little bit more behind the scenes. Was right. was there much cultural impact that happened after the 1990 World Cup? Were these guys stars at home whenever they returned? Uh, what happened after the World Cup? Yeah, very little uh, for <laughs> for for these guys. Yeah, I mean, so what happened actually was a huge regime change behind the scenes at the U.S. Soccer Federation, and that's what changed a lot of things. This this President Werner Fricker that we mentioned was ousted uh, with FIFA uh, putting a huge thumb on the scales by by many accounts. Um, in came Alan Rothenberg, and uh fricker was always loyal to bob gansler um once fricker was out gansler didn't necessarily have a lot of allies at the federation and that's when bora came in uh bob was um i believe technically he resigned uh about a year later and bora came in and you know he put his own spin on everything and that's when um you know that I mean, there were always these guys, you know, on the fringes or in college, or they'd be on the 92 Olympic team or whatever. Um, but all of a sudden they started coming in. But, you know, a lot of these 1990 guys, this ended up, 1990 ended up being their only World Cup. And there's a lot of things that went on behind the scenes, um, depending on who you talk to, with attempts at unionization or, you know, favoritism within the squad, which, you know, <laughs> obviously is not a thing of the past. Um, and uh just just all these other things that you know it there was the core group that you mentioned um but a lot of these a lot of these big leaders on the 1990 team just kind of started falling away one by one either through politics or or whatever else and so you ended up with uh, all two very distinct teams i'd say between 1990 and 1994 with with with, with some carrying over but you know, those 1990 guys that ended up on the 94 team were definitely the, you know, the, the elder statesmen on the team. You know, there's, there's, I, I made some of the illusions between um, 1990 and where we are right now and, and 1994 and 2026. Um, I, I yeah. asked uh, my followers on Twitter recently, what was the most important World Cup in, in U.S. soccer history? How important is the 2022 World Cup? Uh, so many of them said 1994 was the most important World Cup. And it's hard to argue against that. And a lot of them pointed towards 2026 as the next most important World Cup uh, in American soccer. I mentioned in the intro kind of where we are right now in American soccer, where soccer is really broken through um, as yeah. a sport in the United States. It's not quite reached the levels of uh, baseball, basketball and football, but it seems to be gaining on them year over year, especially whenever it comes to young people in this country have really embraced this sport. Um, I know. In 1990, it was 
imperative that the U.S. made the World Cup for the growth of the sport. It was imperative that the 1994 World Cup happened uh, to continue launching that sport. Uh, the 1998 World Cup was devastating. Uh, the 2022 World, I mean, the 2002 World Cup was weird because it happened in Korea <laughs> at a weird time and it was tape delayed and whatever. And, you know, it just, it, the U.S. made the quarters, but the impact in the United States was weird. But still, we, we always seem to circle these World Cups as the most important thing as, as catalysts to bring new people into the game and to grow the sport. Uh, right. As we get towards 2022 and we move towards 2026, I mean, we saw the U.S. miss the 2018 World Cup and American soccer still grew. It, it still grew a lot over the last four years. I'm wondering, do you think that the World Cup is, is still as important to the growth of American soccer as it was in those days? Or do you feel like, Soccer is inevitable at this point, and and we don't necessarily need it as much. Yeah, that's a great question. I hadn't thought about that, but I think I think the World Cup's still important. I think you know, I soccer is a big part of my life. I'm sure it is yours and 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 your listeners. Uh, but I think for you know a, a lot of Americans, they only start paying attention. I know you know folks in my family do. Uh, and, and and friends of mine, when the World Cup rolls around, it's it's an event and it's, you know, to use an old fashioned term, it's like must see TV. It's it's the rest of the world throwing a party. And it's such an easy like gateway into the sport. You know, I mean, you have like your own country to to, to cheer for, although it is interesting, like you said, that in, in 2018, the sport still grew without without us in it. Um, but, yeah, I do. It's it's something um, it's just this. It's almost like the, I mean, it's, we all know it's like maybe not the best version of the game anymore as, as good as club soccer is getting these days and, you know, champions league level soccer, but there's still just something so special and, and ceremonial. And just, I guess what I'm trying to say something so important about it um, that, and, and I feel like there always will be unless FIFA finds new ways to dilute it and kill it or whatever, <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's, it, it is, and it'll, it'll just always be special. And, just to, to to go back to what I started saying a moment ago, I think it's when the rest of America starts, you know, paying attention to our sport. Yeah, yeah, and that is coming in a few weeks, and and it's it's so interesting that the World Cup is just around the corner, and we're doing it in the the, the fall, and there's just so much stuff going on. It doesn't feel like it yeah. has the enormity that it's had in years past, and there's still right. a lot of people looking towards. Uh, 2026. Uh, if you had the opportunity to stand in front of the uh, the current U.S. men's national team right now as, as they head towards Qatar and you got to uh, relay some information uh, to those players that you've learned in researching this 1990 World Cup, what would you tell those players? I'd tell them a few things. I would say, first of all, the team that qualified for the first time in 40 years was making like 20 bucks a day in per diems. They're making like 20, 25,000 a year, basically fighting for their survival. Um, and, you know, they played like this current team. They were young. Um, they were very self-confident. Failure wasn't even really a point of reference to them because they were almost naive. They hadn't, these were college players and stars of their indoor teams that had won everything. Like they didn't, they didn't really know what it was like to, to, to lose very much. And I think any team can take a lot of that 
with them. I mean, that's that's just an attitude that, that you bring onto the field, that not only confidence, but a big chip on your shoulder, um, especially because everyone is writing off the US. And I think the world takes us more seriously now, which I'm sure is to our benefit, but you know, the past US teams, I think, were able to use that to their advantage. And then I would also say that this team had such big egos, the 1990 team, that there was a really great um, profanity-laden um, <laughs> speech given by given by John Stolmeyer, who was very much the hard man um, of that 1990 team, which I won't ruin in the book. But you know, after all the all the strategic meetings, after all the all the practices and planning for the week, that was like the final thing the U.S. team were left with before they headed headed for the Stadio Olimpico in Rome against their big game against Italy. And it was like, that's what made the team fired up to play. So um, I hate to sound so old fashioned, but I, I think a good, you know, kick in the rear ends never does a team too much harm. I don't know. I don't know what they have going on behind the scenes um, in this current locker room. But uh, from what I've seen, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm old fashioned, but I think those <laughs> sorts of things can't hurt. And again, also, I mean, I think, you know, again, players these days just never will never understand what it's like to go through to be fighting for your life by playing soccer. And um, I don't know, that's, that, that's a special feeling. But again, um, I think, uh, I think this will be a good learning experience for them. 2022. Um, I sure hope they go far, but uh, you know, if, if they don't, sometimes you got to learn things the hard way and, and you can turn it around. But um yeah, like you say, this is another young team, and we'll see how they do. We'll see how they respond to adversity. Um, I personally think anything can happen. They're they're young, they're exciting. They can be exciting, I should say. Um, they're unpredictable. I will also say this: leading up to the Italy game uh, in 1990, Roberto Donadoni, um, one-time Metro star at the end of his career, uh, was quoted in the Italian press. Everyone, everyone was saying the U.S. was going to get slaughtered 10 to 0, 20 to 0, who knows what. And he said that, the, he was very wise. He said the U.S. is a young team. And he said to be young means not necessarily to have fear, but it does mean to, to be inexperienced. And I guess that's where we find ourselves now. Adam Elder, the name of the book is New Kids in the World Cup. Thank you so much for coming on. Can you tell everybody uh, where they can find the book, when it's going to be available, and where they can find more information on you and what you're up to? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, all the information is newkidsintheworldcup.com. That's got my live events, uh, tour dates. I'll be um, in Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, all the month of November leading up to the World Cup. I hope to see you all there and the book is available uh wherever wherever you can buy a book amazon barnes and noble your local independent bookstores also check out the website i have a great soundtrack that goes along with the book full of uh all the hits from 1988 to 1990. oh that's cool <laughs> well i'm definitely excited to pick it up i love reading about this stuff it is so interesting and gives such a perspective of uh of where we are and where we've come from so i'm very excited about it adam thank you so much for coming on guys make sure you pick up the book make sure you like make sure you subscribed if you enjoyed the conversation we got a lot more coverage coming your way as we head towards the world cup thank you so much for watching my name is sam and this is the yank report brought to you by bet online thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform 
Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.